We are back in Luke today, Luke 23. Um, so find your way to Luke 23, and verse 44 is where we're going to be starting today, if you want to get precise and all that. It is quite the strange uh, juxtaposition we have today. Uh, we are celebrating uh, Advent. We are celebrating the coming of our Lord, the incarnation of Jesus in human flesh, born of Mary, uh, the light shining into the darkness, right? And yet, in our passage today, what we see is the, the light go dark. Uh, what we see is the death uh, of Jesus. And so we're experiencing, uh, and I keep pointing this out, and we're going to do it again next week, actually, right? Because we're going to talk about the burial of Jesus next week. But we're experiencing these two bookends in Jesus' uh, earthly ministry today. His birth and the moment of his death. Uh, and so as we come to this passage, I, I do want us to, to look with our eyes and to hear with our ears from, from God's word. And we're going to begin, like I said, uh, Luke chapter 23, uh, verse 44. If you will, make sure you have that in front of you, and, and let's uh, follow along as I read out loud. <clears throat> it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, and to your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, were turned home, beating their breast. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, this, this is your word. And this morning we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in it. We ask that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you would apply these words to our hearts so that we would understand the gospel better, so that we would understand your saving purposes, and so that we would understand how to live and die with genuine hope and trust in you. You are glorious God, our glorious Savior. All these things we ask in Jesus' lovely name. Amen. So we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning in those, those final words of our Lord. They're quite significant, but, but first, I, I do want to clear up a few things surrounding those words of our Lord. First of all, we don't speak about time the way they do, right? Sixth hour, ninth hour, that kind of thing. Uh, what's going on there is they spoke of time in terms of from the point the sun being up, right? The first hour is once the sun's been up an hour uh, and, and, and such. And so what they're talking about here uh, is the sixth hour is noon, and the ninth hour is three o'clock in the afternoon, so it's just three three-hour period of darkness that has come over the earth. Uh, this is not an eclipse. Uh, that much we know for certain because the Passover occurs during a, a full moon, which would not be a time for an eclipse. Uh, who knows how God did it, right? If you want to get down to the science, what did he actually do at this moment that's happening? Uh, we don't know. What we do know is that God has miraculously created darkness in this moment that lasts for just three hours of this day. We also learn that the curtain in the temple has been torn, of, torn in two from top to bottom. 
Uh, and, and this is a pretty significant thing. This, this curtain in the, in the temple that it's talking about is between uh, what was called the holy place and the holy of holies. And this holies of holies um, is this location where only the high priest, one man, right, the high priest could enter into it. And even this guy could only go in there on one day of the entire year, this day that's called Yom Kippur, uh, which probably means nothing to you. You might recognize uh, its other name, the Day of Atonement. When he would go in and he would sprinkle blood of the sacrifice in order to atone for, in order to pay for uh, his sins and the sins of God's people. He was this, this in-between, right? Between God and man. And he was the one who came between for them. Uh, bridge that gap. Now, to, to put this in, in, in some perspective, this, this curtain is, is pretty massive. It's 30 feet high and 60 feet wide. And, and just to give you something, there is a curtain here behind this. This gap right here is about 30 feet tall. You need to add a few feet to it to get there. Uh, and, and more than twice as wide as this is what we're talking about. And maybe the most crazy thing about this, uh, this whole curtain is, is that it's four inches thick. I can't even imagine. Four inches thick is what we're talking about tearing here, as if, as if somehow you don't need a miracle if it's an inch, right? Uh, but it's, it's being torn, and there's this huge symbolism going on here. Uh, this sacrifice of Jesus is removing this separation between God and his people. We know this. We, we live in this. Maybe it's not so amazing. It should be amazing because it, it wasn't always quite like that, right? It, it removes this separation between God and his people. We can now, through Christ, come directly to God. We don't need a high priest or any priest, right? Jesus replaces the high priest. There's no longer any barrier between God and his people when when Christ is there. And and so later in our our passage then, after Jesus' death, we're going to learn that this Roman centurion says uh, suddenly, right, he's been mocking him all this time, and suddenly he's saying, certainly this man was innocent, In the other Gospels, we learn a little bit more about the centurion, that he actually acknowledges that Jesus was truly the Son of God. There's something God is doing in in this man's heart. Uh, Furthermore, the crowds, they all go home just beating their breast, right? Uh, This is a a symbol of grief and and repentance for us to understand that they now understand that Jesus is, is innocent. They maybe even really understand that he's the Christ. It's left a little open ended for us, to be fair, but. That seems to be what's going on here. And so then I I do want to look at these last words of our Lord before his death upon the cross. Now, um, sometimes I'll read these really just dumb fiction books because I'll read so much theology. I just want a story uh, of some sort. And some years ago, I read this book where the main character uh, collected the last words of famous peoples. That was kind of his niche uh, and he became particularly obsessed with the, the last words of this Venezuelan military leader named Simon Bolivar. Anyone even heard of this guy before? Okay. Strange people, if you know this. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so his last words were, how will I ever get out of the labyrinth? And that became this, this big mystery for this main character. I, I've often found my own self uh, intrigued by people's last words. I, I've collected a bunch over the years as well, not with the same obsession as the, that character, but... Uh, a few of them that I enjoy, Pancho Villa, Villa uh, the Mexican revolutionary's last words were, don't let it in like this, tell them I said something, uh, right? They didn't do what he asked uh, very well. Uh, Dominic Bujors, the French grammar, grammar, grammarian, I'm not doing very good at grammar there, am I? Uh, the last words were, were fittingly and certainly intentionally, he said, I am about to or I am going to die, either expression is correct. 
Uh, Oscar Wilde, the, the poet and playwright, his last words, either that wallpaper goes or I go. Uh, you know what happened there. Uh, during the Civil War, it's one of my favorites, uh, Union General John Sedgwick uh, was shot and killed immediately after these words. Here they are. They couldn't hit an elephant from that distance. They did. Uh, some last words reflect on regrets. David Cassidy of the Partridge family fame. Uh, anyone know who that is? Yeah, same people that know who Bolivar is. Um, he came to his end after saying simply, so much wasted time. All these regrets. As a man with, with fame and, and wealth, and that's his last words. Uh, Karl Marx's last words were, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. While the much preferable Marx, Groucho Marx, uh, his last words were, this is no way to live. Uh, and that was the end of his life right there. And, and I'll give you one more. It's, it's less funny because um, these words have led so many people across the globe astray. Uh, the last words of a man named Siddhartha, though you probably know him better as the Buddha, uh, he said, work hard to gain your own salvation. His last words as a spiritual leader, that, that's what they were. Uh, they're very different, quite different from the last words of our Lord. You see them before you there in verse 46, just before Jesus breathes his last breath, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus is God incarnate. And here he is being murdered by the very people he created, uh, people whom he's come to redeem. Right? How did Jesus end up upon a cross in this situation? Uh, maybe you remember, hopefully it wasn't too long ago, you remember uh, the, the parable that Jesus shared back in, in Luke 20 about a man who'd built this vineyard and it, it's beautiful and it's wonderful and he leaves the country and he puts it in charge of, uh, of tenants who are to lease it and to enjoy the, the profits from it and all this stuff goes on and, and until the parable ends with the tenants murdering the vineyard's very own son whom he had sent back to the vineyard. See, that parable is, is about how Jesus ended up upon this death device, how he ended up upon this cross, rejected by the same Jewish people that God had provided for, has provided for all these many years. <clears throat> but this parable also makes crystal clear that Jesus knew that his life was going to end upon the cross. And we could cite a whole bunch of other instances where Jesus makes this clear. He, he's, he is the son whom they kill, and, and he's been preparing for his death all this time. A child born to die. We know it from the very beginning. And yet his death is surprising to the disciple. His, his death is surprising to the crowds. But it's not surprising to Jesus. See, Jesus knows this is the point where his body and, and spirit are going to be separated. His soul departs his body. Now, if, if you've ever been to an open casket funeral, um, then you've probably experienced this. If you haven't, I, I don't recommend it. Uh, if you've ever <clears throat> looked into that casket and looked into the face of someone, it's, it's hard to put into words, but as you, you look at someone's dead body, you just know they're not there, right? He's not there, she's not there. It's, it's just their body. And, and again, it's hard to put into words, but you just, you just kind of know it. But, but before Jesus' spirit departs, right, he, he says these final words, Father... Into your hands I commit my spirit. When we 
read the passage, or when we were reading it earlier, did you notice that there, there's this detail about the volume of which Jesus says that, right? It's, it seems like of no interest, what, who cares how loud he was, but it says, right, he called out with a loud voice. That's because Jesus is in control here, <clears throat> right? It's not this faint whisper, as worn out as Jesus is, right, and, and, and this... He's human, right? And, and, and as his strength is going out, he, he still has enough strength at this moment to actually say this incredibly loud, which speaks something to the condition that Jesus is still in at this point. What I'm trying to get you to understand here is that Jesus is not defeated. He actually lays down his own life. You see, Luke, Luke could have written even after this, right? He could have said, and after this, Jesus died. And we'd be like, that makes perfect sense. But, but his words are really a lot more interesting there in verse 47. You see him? He says, <clears throat> he breathed his last. It's like Luke is, is showing us that Jesus at this point actually chooses to stop breathing. And that actually fits with what we read in other aspects or other places in Scripture, right? Jesus himself said in John 10, 17 through 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. You see, Jesus' life was not taken from him. His life was given by him. And that's very significant. These last words of our Lord, right? They, they might sound familiar, and, and if they do, it's because they're an absolute echo of Psalm 31.5. And in one sense, you could say, this is Jesus praying the Psalms, right? And, and, and yet there is one significant difference. Uh, I want you to see if you can hear it. You know what Jesus says on the cross. Hopefully you have it right before you in the Bible. <clears throat> but the psalmist writes this in Psalm 30, 31.5. He says, into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, O faithful God. You see, the psalmist addresses God as Lord, and he addresses uh, God as his faithful God, right? But, but how does Jesus address God here on the cross? Did you see it? He says, Father. It's a pretty big difference here. That Jesus addresses God as his father, this is very unique at the time. Again, you and I, we're so used to it. We pray to, you know, our heavenly father. We speak of him as our father all the time. But for the Jews at this time, that was considered way too intimate. You do not address God in, in, in that kind of thing. They would speak of God as the father of Israel as a general kind of statement. But never do you see them say that God is my father. And here Jesus does that. Um... And he's done it over and over, right? He, even when we, we read way back about uh, when, when he's in Jerusalem as a young boy, he even spoke of God as his, his father then. And in fact, this is one of the things that drove the Pharisees nuts is that he kept calling God his father. And they didn't believe any man could actually say that. Now, these words of our Lord are, are, are spoken as this act of contentment, right? They are showing this, this faith. They are showing this absolute confidence in who God is, in his love for him, um, he is trusting God the Father with absolutely everything in this moment. And if your faith is in Jesus, then his Father is also your Father. God is your Father. I mean, how amazing is it that we can speak to God in prayer, and it's right and proper for us to actually address God as Father? Or Heavenly Father. 
or anything like that. There was actually, um, when I was a youth pastor and a high school teacher back in Kansas City years ago, there was a girl I, I, I taught that um, when she was in high school, she would re- re- routinely begin her prayers by saying, Daddy. And, and, and when I first heard that, I kind of cringed, like, that just... I don't like that, and I, I don't know why, but I just didn't like it, and it, it didn't take long, though, for me to see. I, I quickly saw, right, that these actually rightly reflected this relationship that we have with God as his children, as we've been welcomed in, into his family through union with Christ, as adopted into actual children of God in that sense. In John seventeen twenty three, Jesus says, to God the Father regarding us, he says, you loved them even as you loved me. We're in the family. And 1 John 3, 1 uh, further proves that through, the gospel, that through the gospel we have become beloved children. Listen, uh, there, is, there we read, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. C- Christian, you not only can call God Father, there's all sorts of names in the scriptures we can refer to God as, right? That are right and good. But, but not only is, is Father one of them we can, but we should. We should because he is our Father. There's an interesting contrast here as well regarding uh, this term hands in our passage. If you step back and think about it, Jesus has voluntarily delivered himself into the hands of men as he tells his disciples, right? The same thing. He says in Matthew 17, uh, 23 through, 22 through 23, he says, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, there's this contrast with our passage here, right? You see this, because his body, Jesus has delivered in the hands of men who are going to handle it horribly, right? They have beaten him. They have nailed him to his cross. It's been nothing but violence leading to death. But, but his spirit, on the other hand, his spirit, he delivers into the hands of his father. These men cannot touch it. He delivers into the hands of his father who he trusts to handle with love and comfort where it is absolutely safe. And and this is not only true for Jesus as God's son, but it's also true for every Christian. It is also true for every elect child of God. We we can trust God our Father with our spirit as we do every other aspect of our life. Everything. Jesus has trusted his spirit into his Father's hands at death so naturally, and we see that. And, And the reason it's so natural to him, right, it is this close relationship he has with God. But, but in some sense, you can, you can go back and say he has trusted God with his father at every single aspect of his life. Every moment of it. From the very beginning, we've seen it all through the Gospel of Luke. He's trusted God with every aspect of his life. And that's the question that kind of approaches us here. Is, is that how I'm living? Is that how you're living? Have you trusted your life? Yes, your eternal soul, but also every aspect of your life into the hands of God the Father. The Apostle Paul, writing in 2 Timothy 1.12, uh, wrote about this, right? Um, about his trust in God, writing to young Timothy. He says, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul is talking about two things here. He's talking about the message of the gospel that's been entrusted to him. But he's also talking about his own soul. Listen, Christian, if you have trusted the Lord with your soul, you are in good hands. 
right? It's, it's kind of like the Allstate model. You're in good hands with Allstate. And I don't know if that's true about Allstate. I don't even care if it's true about Allstate. But I do know it is absolutely true of your Heavenly Father. You must know that. There is eternal security in his hands because his hands are mighty, his hands are strong. So much so that, that Jesus, speaking to his disciples, uh, speaking of Christians, said in, in John 10, 29, he said, my father who has given them, right, Christians, disciples, to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hands. No one. Not the devil, not disease, not poverty, not a pandemic, nothing political, nothing can snatch you out of God's hands. When we realize that not only our souls but our lives are safer in the hands of God, it helps us to resist that instinct that we want to be in control of everything. Even if you're not a control freak, you really want to be in control more than you realize probably. Which, which raises a, a question, what's, what's it look like to commit your life into the hands of God? It means we, we trust him to provide what we need. What we need financially, what we need relationally, emotionally, everything. It means we, we trust him to protect us, to encourage our hearts, to comfort us in trials, to discipline us when we're in sin, to sustain us when we are suffering. Committing our, our lives into God's hands means living for the glory of God every day of the week, not just Sunday. We need to know the truth that as Christians, the life we live, it's, it's not our own because we were bought with a price. We were bought with the blood of Christ. This is good. This is wonderful. In fact, maybe, maybe you theologically understand, you know that you cannot escape the sovereign will of God. It's one thing to know this theologically, but quite another level, have you willing, or rather on another level, have you willingly, submissively, placed your life in the hands of God? Have you prayed something like, God, my, my life is yours for your purposes, to be lived in your ways, for your glories, something like that. I, I, just, I trust you with it, God. Because it's one thing for us to know, like, theologically, God's sovereign. It's another thing for us to really submit ourselves to the fact that God is good and cares about us. Listen, here, here on the cross in this moment, we, we learn that there can be a blessed communion with God even when the circumstances around us feel like an, an F5 tornado has just been ripping through our lives. And in fact, some of the closest times in our life, our, our closest feelings, right? It's feelings, but our closest relationship to God in that sense is, is when we are going through some of the most difficult things. So let us trust the Lord, especially in those moments of, of physical, relational, emotional suffering. As First Peter 4.19 encourages us, saying this, saying, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. As Christians, we will suffer. When God redeems us, we say this often, right? When God redeems us, he does not remove suffering from our lives, but we will never, never, we will never, you will never suffer apart from the presence of your Heavenly Father. Ever. Let me give you one more obvious application of this passage. We, we, we don't know the details of our own death like, like Jesus knew, right? He knows it's the cross. He knows where it's going. He's on his way to Jerusalem 
I'm going there to die, right? He's born in the world. I'm born to die. All, all this he knows. We don't know. We don't know. It could be cancer, a car wreck, heart attack, glorious martyrdom of some sort. I don't know. Uh, we, we just don't know, but we know that it's coming. It is coming at some point in our life. And, and Jesus here sets a precedent for us because throughout Luke, Jesus has taught us how to live well. And, and here on the cross, our Lord is teaching us how to actually die well. And the first thing we all need to know is that if you have trusted, if, you, if you've not trusted your soul to God, you are in eternal danger. And that's not some like preacher scare tactic, okay? I don't say it to be dramatic. I'm not interested in that. I say it to be as truthful as God's word is to us. I could give you many instances. I'll give you just one. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. We all will die, and then we will face judgment. We, we didn't commit, or we didn't all commit the, the crimes or the sins of, of Hitler and Mussolini, right? You can probably all be like, he's worse than me, so I'll probably be all right. No, you probably won't, uh, because we've all sinned. And, and, and so for all, the judgment will be guilty, and the punishment of that guilt will be poured out upon you unless Jesus stands in your place, and it's already been poured out on him on the cross, you see, if your faith is in Jesus, then he's taken that punishment for you. There is no other option, no other way. There just isn't. But, but this way is, is offered freely in the gospel, and so you can trust in the Lord this very day. Now, now Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's true. For the unbeliever, the unrepentant sinner should fear their soul falling into the hands of a holy God. But for those who, by faith in Jesus, union with Christ, who, who are forgiven and, and made God's children, there is no safer place to be than in the hands of God. None. And so, Christian, that is why you can learn from Jesus how to die well. Jesus' suffering on the cross is, is far more than an example, okay? I just want to get out of the way because it is so much more. There is so much going on here besides that. But it is indeed also an example for us, right? First uh, Peter 2.21 makes that clear when Peter says this. He says, for this is how you have been, uh, this is, this, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We not only look to Jesus how to live our lives, but also how to die. And you're like, yeah, you said that. Okay. Uh, I, I hope at least every so often, though, you are, you're asking this question. You are praying this prayer, asking the Lord, okay, how, how do I die well? How do I die well? And this is not just a question for old people. Okay? We, we want to push against the, the fear that death brings to our hearts. A.W. Pink once wrote this. He said, death may be king of terrors to the unsaved, but to the Christian, death is simply the door which admits us into the presence of God. What we learn in the gospel here and at the cross, right, is that Jesus has secured victory over death. Secured it. And so this means we, we no longer need to be terrified of death. We, we can, like Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, 55, say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? To, to not fear will be an ongoing battle for you. That's, that's the reality. It, it just is. Um, 
It just is. My, my grandmother, a solid believer, ended up with pancreatic cancer late in life. And I remember close to the end of her life talking to her about Christ. Like, is, is that where your comfort is? And, and just, I'm a seminary student at the time. I just wanted to make sure I'd had this conversation with her in, in a deeper way. And she tells me, yeah, I, I am confident that my salvation, my faith in Christ, my salvation is secure. But I'm just so terrified because of the unknown. And, and there's going to be a reality to that. That's, that's the unknown of death, right? That's, that's a little different than, than, than the fear of, of what actually happens. And, and to, to see her go through that, to know on one level there is some fear of death. On the other level, there's all this confidence in the Lord that, that she was able to go through it, you know, boldly in a, lot, in a number of senses. Um, but there's so much comfort to know that we are safe in the hands of the Father. And so we see Jesus do that. That The first Christian martyr also followed this example. Who knows who the first Christian martyr is? You can shout it out. It's your chance. Stephen. Stephen. You're right, right? Acts 7.59, the Jews are, are stoning him. It's all happening quickly. And he calls out in prayer. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So close to the actual words of our Lord. And Christians have continued to follow Christ's example. I remember years ago reading about the death of Lady Jane Grey. She was, she was 18 years old. Get your mind around this. 18 years old. She's been chosen to be the Queen of England, right? It's 1553. You're the Queen of England, right? This is better than American Idol. Yay. Uh, except her reign lasted nine days. Because... Bloody Mary, the, the drink, not, or the queen, not the drink, rather. Uh, she took over and she sentenced Lady Jane to death by beheading with an axe. And yet there's this time period. She knows it's coming. And, and while she awaited her execution, this is 18-year-old Jane pins this letter to her 14-year-old sister. This is crazy, right? Uh, you're going like, to want to hear this. Um, and, and to the point, it doesn't matter. It's not just for old people to think about death. She says, live to die that by death you may enter into eternal life and then enjoy the life that Christ has gained for you by his death. And then, listen to that. This is for you young people. I look here. I know there's other young people. You're all very young. Sean, you're young. Susan, you're very young. All you're young. Uh, anyway, listen to these words. Don't think that just because you are now young, your life will be long. Because young and old die as God wills. That's what she's telling her 14-year-old sister. And I, today we're like telling them, get out of my room. Um, so later, as, as Lady Jane Grey's head was placed upon the block, as she's waiting for that final swoop of the axe, she repeated what are nearly the words of Jesus here on the cross. She's saying over and over again, Lord into thy hands I commit my spirit. Lord, into my hand, your hands I commit thy spirit. Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And, and, and then the executioner swung his axe and, and Jane's body dropped dead, but her soul, her soul was safe in the hands of her father, her heavenly father. Like Jesus trusted his father at his hour of death, so too we can trust our heavenly father at our hour of, hour of death. The last thing we, we see in our passage today in verse 49 there is that those who knew Jesus and the many women who had been following him since Galilee, they, they stood at a distance and they watched these things going on. Now, it's kind of hard for us to get our head around this because we know the ending. In fact, you and I know these are not actually the last words of Jesus spoken in life. 
in his earthly ministry. Right? We, we know the resurrection is coming. And so it's easy to miss the weight of this moment when the light seems gone forever. There's darkness over the earth. And, and, and just think about it. They put so much hope in this man Jesus. And they look up in the distance and there he is hanging upon a cross. Just lifelessly slumped, dead they, they can see it. They, they can feel the uncertainty of the future in their own bones. Their Lord is dead. Now what? And I, and I say that because it, it's okay for us to dwell in that moment. I think we're afraid to ever dwell in that Friday to Sunday moment. Um, we, we too know what it's like to live with uncertainty about the future. Uh, what do we do? <clears throat> I mean, we do what our, our Lord did on the cross. We, we entrust our, our future into God's hands and we rest in the knowledge that even if we don't know how this ends, our soul is safe in the hands of our God, always. Safe in, in the hands of our, our sovereign God. And so we can rest. We can rest in the midst of whatever's going on in your life, truly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And for the cross, and for these specific words spoken as Jesus gave his life for our redemption. These words calling us to see beyond death's door and to trust our souls into your sovereign and loving care. Lord, please give faith to all who lack it this morning. And please strengthen the faith of all your children this morning. Teach us to place our lives in your hands. Work all that we have learned today into our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.